This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Kiesi. Okay. So uh, we wanted to finish with this perspective that was published this, um, I'm actually not sure when it was published at this point, when um, January 29th. So it was published a few days ago. Um, it's called, in the New England Journal of Medicine. It is from Dr. Amy Blake from uh, Bay State in uh, Springfield, Massachusetts. We uh, say hello to all our friends from Bay State. I mean, I have a few colleagues there that uh, are very near and dear to my heart. And um, the the perspective is called The Promise. And I feel like sometimes with all the things that we have to read, we don't have time. So we're just going to read it for you so that if you're driving in the car, you can listen to this uh, very nice perspective uh, essay. Um, the- I'm glad that you're reading it and not me because I found it very touching. It's it's very touch. I mean, it's is um, it it's uh, it struck a few chords with me as well. So here it goes. The last promise I made was in 2013. As a first year fellow in neonatology, I was well versed in the statistics on survival of preterm infants. When Wyatt was admitted to the neonatal intensive care unit after being born at 31 weeks of gestation, I reassured his mother. More than 98% of infants who are born at 31 weeks survive, and the overwhelming majority grow into happy, healthy children. He was small, around the fifth percentile for his gestational age, but he arrived screaming with strong lungs and was doing well in his first few days. As Wyatt closed in on one week of life, stable and tolerating feedings, his mother confessed her anxiety during one of our daily updates. I'm worried, she said. I just want him to be okay. I again reassured her, 98% of babies like Wyatt survive, and most do well. He'll be okay, I said. I promise. She took a breath and smiled. I left feeling proud of my communication skills and confident that Wyatt would continue to do well. Two days later, I was called in from home to see another baby in the unit. While you're here, one of the nurses said, could you look at Wyatt? He's been tachycardic, and something just seems off. At Wyatt's bedside, it was clear that something was indeed very off. His heart rate was in the 200s, high even for a premature baby. His skin was mottled and his belly distended. When I opened his diaper, I found it full of blood. An x-ray confirmed the diagnosis. Pneumatosis intestinalis, a pattern of air within the bowel wall that's pathognomonic for necrotizing enterocolitis. We called his parents to come in as we drew labs, increased his respiratory support, and started IV fluids. By the time they arrived 30 minutes later, we had intubated Wyatt, had placed an arterial line, and were starting dopamine to address his hypotension. A repeat x-ray only three hours after the onset of tachycardia showed extensive pneumoperitoneum his intestine had perforated. I shared this information with his family, and we prepared to transfer Wyatt to the nearby children's hospital for surgery. As they left the unit, his mother gave me a hug. Thank you for everything, she said. Two days later, despite maximal effort, Wyatt died of fulminant necrotizing enterocolitis. Some seven years later, I was an attending neonatologist rounding in the NICU when I received a text message from my brother. It's a boy, he announced. Born at term after an uncomplicated pregnancy, Nick was doing well, as was his mother. Only a few hours later, my brother called back, concerned. Nick was having trouble breathing. They were taking him to the NICU. The next 48 hours were a flurry of text messages and phone calls as I tried to interpret blood gases and chest x-rays from 1,500 miles away and to translate what the doctors were telling my brother into plain language. Nick, Nick was moved from CPAP to a ventilator, received surfactant, and initially had a good response. As his oxygen requirement crept back up to 40%, then 60%, I began to get uneasy. 
Did he have an infection? Pulmonary hypertension? Something less common, maybe? The neonatologist taking care of Nick tried to reassure my brother, much as I had tried to reassure Wyatt's family years before. He's doing okay, she said. His blood gas is getting better, and his oxygen needs are stable. My brother, hoping for an answer and heavily coached by me, pressed her. Is this pneumonia? Does he need an oscillator? How about a transport for ECMO? Could this be something more sinister, like one of the congenital disorders of surfactant production? It's not surfactant protein B deficiency, she said. That's the bad one, and Nick doesn't have that, I promise. As Nick continued to get sicker, he was transferred to the level 4 NICU across town. His oxygen requirements and ventilator support remained at near maximal levels for days. And then weeks as each intervention helped a little and then didn't. Sedation, paralysis, inhaled nitric oxide, inotropic support. His dedicated team left no stone unturned. Just after, Nick, just after Nick reached three weeks of age, the genetics report came back. Surfactant protein B deficiency, it read. Homozygous for a pathogenic mutation. My brother and his wife sat down with the team to discuss the findings, but we knew what it meant. Fatal without a lung transplant. Nick remained on support for several days more as his older brother and grandparents were finally able to meet him. Then, when he was just under a month old, his parents withdrew support. Nick died peacefully in his mother's arm. As physicians, we are frequently given the gift of implicit trust by our patients and their families. Based on years of education and experience, our words matter. A broken promise, even when broken by factors out of our control, can result in not only disappointment, but destruction of that trust. A recent study of parent-physician communication in NICU pointed to providing hope as a key theme for good communication. But promising something that is out of our control risks providing only false hope. When I promised Wyatt's mother that he would be okay, I fully believed that he that this would be the case. With my limited experience at that point in my training, I didn't yet understand how helpless all our knowledge, our medicine, our medicines, our surgeries could be against such ruthless disease. I believe too that Nick's first neonatologist truly believed that he couldn't have such a rare, terrible disease and that she that she was doing her best to provide that much needed hope. Promises that are within our power to keep, on the other hand, can strengthen the bond between physicians and parents. Promises to do our best, to care about their child, to remember the ones we couldn't save. Two years after Wyatt died, I saw his parents again. His mother had delivered another child, Bryson, this time at 34 weeks. He was admitted to our NICU just down the hall from where his older brother had been. When their mother saw me, she gave me a hug. Thank you for taking care of Wyatt, she said. I hugged her back, thinking carefully about my words. I'll take great care of Bryson, I said, and I'll never forget Wyatt, I promise. The names and identifying details have been changed to protect the family's privacies, and uh, the disclosure forms provided by the author are available at newenglandjournalofmedicine.org. What a, what, a great, what a great letter. No? What do you think, mm-hmm. Daphna? Are you with mm-hmm. us? <laughs> yeah, I'm here. <laughs> the, you know... The takeaway is not that we shouldn't promise anything, but it's in those last few lines that there are plenty of things we can promise families, right? That we'll walk with them, we'll support them, and we'll do our very best for their babies, you know? So, but, but our words and our, and our words do matter and we should pick them carefully. 
yeah, your parents it, are just desperate and they'll, and they'll like, they'll like beg you into submission, right. To give you, give them an answer that they're looking for. And, and I think there are ways that we can convey our expertise and engender trust without making promises that we can't keep. You know? yeah, that's not that's... to say I haven't stepped in it before and said, you know, made, made that error also. I mean, I've, I've been, I've been on both sides of the fence where I've, I've been too bleak or sometimes too hopeful, but I do think that it's shining mm -hmm. a light on a very narrow line that we, we are all having the right intentions. I think we all, we all know what we're supposed to say. And, and what's interesting to me is that, and, and the point that, uh, that Amy is making on this paper is that nobody was really wrong in what they said, right? I mean, they were, they were, they were, they were right. yes, it's extremely unlikely, but can we then like, do, do not confuse things to be unlikely to then promise that things will be okay. And I think that's, 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 right. uh, that's such a neonatologist's uh, uh, thing that mm -hmm. we, we demand excellence at this level of detail where be very careful mm -hmm. about your choice of words. And even if there's a 0.0001% chance, there's still a chance and, and you might find yourself uh, regretting some of the, your choice of words when all you could have done, you could have provided the same comfort and, and, the same and I mean, that, with, with, with measured, with measured words. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that's the, the complicating factor about using statistics sometimes, right? We love statistics. We love statistics, but these families don't have a hundred babies, right? They have one baby in front of them and they only care about this one baby. You know, they, they don't have the bandwidth to care about a hundred babies, right? That's that right? This is their one baby. And if you're that, if you're that one, then it's all, then it's a hundred percent for that family. So you know. it's, it's, I always tell families that when I tell them, I give them statistics, I said, just remember, mm -hmm. flipping a coin has a 50-50% chance of falling heads or tails, but you're flipping one coin once. And, right. and to you, it doesn't really matter what happens if I flip 100 coins, because you're just going to flip the coin mm -hmm. only once. Exactly. And, and right. yeah. And so, so it's always this, this thing that we were talking about on last episode, N of one trials, uh, things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, definitely check it out. I think it's important to circulate these, these letters. They're, they're, they're nice to read. They're definitely much nicer to read than research articles. Let me, let me be honest. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I think it's one of the other aspects that we have enjoyed about the podcast and that's hearing the stories of others. Cause I think sometimes this work can be isolating and this makes it a little less isolating to see it yep. in print, I guess. Absolutely. I'm so, going to try to see if so Amy Blake you. is on Amy Blake is on uh, Twitter, you know, but it's, uh, it sounds like, uh, it sounds like it's a common name. I hope uh, we'll see. We'll see if I find her, I'll tag her. I will try to tag her, tag her on that. Uh, yeah. What were you going to say? This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care professional. Thank you.